Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome to The Evolver, sponsored by The Alchemist Kitchen, hosted by Ken Jordan. There is no I. The self is an illusion. And yet we have bodies, we have histories, relationships. We move and breathe and love among other people who identify us as ourselves. The whole thing can be quite confusing once the veneer of personhood gets peeled away and you're left with the awareness that the common I-centric worldview that we're raised with doesn't actually map well to the sensitively discerned experience of a being at one with the universe across all space and time. Each of us who are called to a spiritual path arrive in our own unique way. Somehow, something cuts through the dense fog of mundane reality and points us in an uncharted direction. So many have taken the path before we have, but it still remains uncharted. We're told, in effect, just go that away. See what happens. Then the clouds start to lift. A common storyline at this point in the journey is that we're being guided by something other than ourselves, larger than ourselves. This guidance can appear as an intuition, come through as a dream, manifest as a series of synchronicities, or it might even appear as a voice speaking to you when you're at your most still. Paul Selig is a normal person who does extraordinary things. For him, the kind of guidance that many of us feel, perhaps in an amorphous way, is strikingly palpable. It appears as a voice or voices, which he hears and then repeats. As he explains in our conversation, this ability came to him slowly over many years, starting with a single word and growing to the length of entire books, which he receives like dictation over a matter of weeks and then delivers to the publisher virtually unchanged. Paul's guides describe their books as energetic transmissions that lift your resonance to a higher vibration. Their words have an effect that goes beyond the boundaries of everyday language. I know people who have had spontaneous kundalini awakenings when reading these books. When Paul is channeling and the energy comes through full force, its intensity is remarkable. I spent last Saturday in a room with Paul channeling with some 100 people on the west side of Manhattan. It felt like having your toe plugged into a socket in a good way. It was clear that most of the people there felt the energy and were having a powerful visceral experience. What Paul's guides teach is the radical power of intention, attention, and awareness to shift the material world. With each book, and there are six in print now, they take the teaching further. The scholar Jeffrey Kripal says that these books are akin to the wisdom of the ancient Gnostics. The guides have said that they are of the order of Melchizedek, which is said to have included Jesus as an initiate. Whatever the details of the lineage, the guides don't seem to think the details are too important. These transmissions communicate a high dose of Christ consciousness. It may or may not resonate for you. These things are so personal and there's no right or wrong here. But no question, it's fascinating. 
Paul Selig is considered to be one of the foremost spiritual channels working today. He has published six breakthrough works of channeled literature, including I Am the Word, The Book of Mastery, and the newly released The Book of Freedom. He was born in New York City and received his master's degree from Yale. A spiritual experience in 1987 left him clairvoyant. Paul offers channeled workshops internationally. He serves on the faculty of the Omega Institute, the Kripalu Center, and the Esalen Institute. Also a noted playwright and educator, he served on the faculty of NYU for over 25 years. He directed the MFA and Creative Writing Program at Goddard College for many years and now serves on the college's board of trustees. You can go to the Paul Selig YouTube channel, it's his name, Paul Selig, and you can hear the guide's teaching, which I recommend. But on today's episode, I visited with Paul in his cozy Chelsea apartment, fire in the fireplace, his new pup Lily nudging me on the couch, and we talked about Paul's own experience on this remarkable journey. The guides make an appearance towards the end, and you'll be able to tell when they show up, but that's all I'm going to say about it. Our notion of what constitutes ourselves and the boundary that separates the self from consciousness outside of ourselves is limited, awkward, impoverished. Paul's experience is a heightened example of how limited the conventional view actually is. I've known Paul for over four years, and all I can say is that I'm increasingly impressed by what he holds and how well he holds it. And the implications of both Paul's personal experience and the teachings of his guides continue to lead me down the rabbit hole to my own surrender to love. Everyone seems to be talking about CBD these days, that is, cannabidiol, the non-psychoactive component of cannabis. The buzz is that CBD doesn't make you high, like THC does, but for conditions such as stress and anxiety, health professionals are increasingly recommending it as an alternative to pharmaceuticals, and scientific research is showing that CBD is highly anti-inflammatory, so it can help with pain relief. What does the scientific research say about CBD? Research centers in the United States and elsewhere are studying the effects of CBD on a variety of ailments. Scientists refer to CBD as a promiscuous compound because it offers therapeutic benefits in many different ways while tapping into how we function physiologically and biologically on a deep level. Extensive preclinical research and some clinical studies have shown that CBD has strong antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, antidepressant, antipsychotic, and neuroprotective qualities. What's the best way to take CBD? CBD-rich cannabis oil products can be taken sublingually, orally, as edibles, lozenges, beverages, tinctures, and gel caps, or applied topically. Concentrated cannabis oil extracts can also be heated and inhaled with a vape pen. Inhalation is good for treating acute symptoms that require immediate attention. The effects can be felt within a minute or two and typically last for a couple of hours. The effects of orally administered CBD-rich cannabis oil can last for four hours or more, but the onset of effects is much slower, like 30 to 90 minutes, than inhalation. Evolver is the proud papa of the Alchemist Kitchen, a botanical dispensary located in the Bowery District of New York, where you can find the finest quality CBD products available without THC. We also make our own premium CBD under the Plant Alchemy label. Our producer Jose's mom uses it for stress, anxiety, and high blood pressure. Our plants are grown in both field and greenhouse environments, 
cultivated using living soil organic principles, leveraging strictly organic inputs, and in full compliance with the controls defined by the Colorado Department of Agriculture. Our plants are some of the highest CBD cannabis varieties currently known. You can find out more about CBD by visiting the Alchemist Kitchen website at thealchemistskitchen.com. There's an S in there. And searching for CBD. There are articles on the blog, an FAQ, and a selection of vetted products. Or stop by our spot at 21 East 1st Street in Manhattan, between Bowery and 2nd Avenue, and talk to one of our staff herbalists. At the shop, tell them you listen to the Evolver podcast and receive a 10% discount on any product on the shelves. So, your most recent book went off to the publisher yesterday? The book is, I know it's actually there. Um, I delivered the newest book, which is called Beyond the Known Realization, maybe two months ago. And I actually just proofed it, uh, proofed the uh, the copy edited version from the publisher, you know, over the last weekend. So it's going to be out in August. So we're just we're just waiting on things to happen. So how's it feel to get it? out. I mean, I have an odd relationship to the books. I'm always relieved when they're out of my hands, but I don't write the books. I sit in a chair and I close my eyes and, you know, the books are all of the guides that I work with, their their teachings and the, the channeling sessions are recorded and then transcribed. So the first time I actually experience the book is usually when I'm proofreading the entire manuscript to give it to the publisher and then when I'm doing the copy edited version. But there's no real writing involved on my part unless I happen to write the introduction. And for this new one, I don't have to. Somebody else is doing it. So the proofing is when you've got a sense of what it is is actually on the page and what the book is really all about. Is that fair? No. I mean, I'm aware of what the book is about. I'm a conscious channel, but I don't know what the title of the book is usually. Certainly, I don't know what the chapter headings are, what the content of the chapter is until it's delivered. And because the book is now delivered, all of the books are delivered now in front of audiences in in live workshops, there's an immediacy to the experience. So I may be channeling a weekend workshop over which the guides will deliver four lectures for a book in between taking questions and doing other kinds of work with people. So I'm usually just so busy taking dictation that I'm not thinking about content. You know, my job is to show up and to be as as clear as I can be for the transmission that wants to come through. The transmission itself really isn't my business. I'm a radio, so I'm in broadcast, and I get to hear the broadcast, you know, um, really read it once the transcriptionist has a go. So before you were a channel, you were an artist, which is to say, not to say that you're not still an artist, but that preceded your experiences at Channel? No, I was a college teacher for for 25 years. I taught at NYU for a quarter of a century, and I ran a graduate program at Goddard College. I'd studied playwriting at Yale, and I'd been a playwright, but I made my living and really identified as a, as a teacher and a college administrator. I was an academic for, for many, many years. I only left that life three years ago when the amount of traveling that I began to do with the channeled work became so extreme that I just couldn't rationalize flying back on a red eye 
from California to make a 9 a.m. Monday faculty meeting. And I had been doing that for about a year or two as best I could. So, you know, I, I suppose I'm an artist. I suppose that channeling may be considered an art form, but I think it's a skill set because my job for this work is to recede, to step back. You know, I imagine that I'm climbing into the backseat of a car before I channel and turning the steering wheel over. So the craft that's involved in channeling is really about the receptivity and the alignment of the energetic system that I hold that allows for this to happen. It's not, my job isn't to worry about the transmission itself. As a playwright and as somebody who's making a personal expression, I'm assuming that there was a real sense of like, here's how I make something. This is my creative endeavor. I'm putting my imprint on what it is that I make. Mm -hmm. Right. It's very different. I mean, I was, you know, I didn't know I was, I didn't know about my abilities until I was in my mid twenties. And when I started to open up and then I had a grapple with that when I was writing plays and when I was in my early twenties, when I was in college and graduate school, um, I was writing to music. I'd put one piece of music on for eight hours at a time, sometimes on loop. I listened to the same song over and over and over that felt like what I was writing and what I was doing in retrospect was inducing a trance. And so the process of playwriting was always about inhabiting character and things like that. Channeling is a very different thing. I mean, the difference is I think what I'm channeling is they're sort of being me. They're speaking as me. I'm not trying. I'm opening myself up. When I work as a psychic, which is a different thing, then I'm stepping into other people. You know, it's, a, it's an interesting thing. I mean, I didn't know that I could do this stuff until I was doing it. So the difference in a creative process, and I think it's the difference between inspired writing and channel writing, and I think that there's a real difference. My plays and my work as a teacher, in fact, as a college teacher, was inspired works. I knew things I couldn't have known. I was present. It was beautiful. It was immediate. It was helpful. All those kinds of things. And in, in its own way, art is a mystical experience for the artist and hopefully, you know, a benefit to, to the viewer. But the difference is, in my mind, that, you know, if I'm inspired, writing can still be crafted. I can have an inspired idea, but my job is to craft it as the writer. When I'm channeling, my job is to listen and to take the dictation. And, you know, the books that come through me are unedited. I mean, they're the unedited transcripts. I just did the copy editing for the one that's coming out in August. And the only things that I think were changed were case, agree were, were, were case agreements, you know. Um, and very often I'm speaking so fast, you know, that, you know, tense agreements, our pluralization, I might have dropped an S when I was speaking. I mean, it's late a lie, those kinds of things, you know, maybe may be fixed by the copy editor, but it is exactly what comes out of my mouth. So there's no crafting involved. So there's no going back and saying, well, I wish this sounded better or more intelligent. My feeling is the moment I do that, it's not a channel book. It's something else. Then it's inspired and that's okay. But I do make the distinction, you know, if it's not my writing to fix, 
It's not my teaching to go back and and make pretty. And the challenge that I have with all of these books is that I'm sitting there in a chair with my eyes closed, hearing and repeating what I'm hearing, often at a breakneck pace, in the understanding that nothing is going to be changed or can be changed. So if the guides say halfway through a lecture, and by the way, the moon is really made out of green cheese, I'm screwed because that's going to be in the book. <laughs> and then I'm going to have to say, now you're going to have to explain this to me, you know, and they're going to have to answer it because I can't, I don't go back and, and get to clip something that's not convenient or that I don't agree with or that might be controversial. You know, my job is to take dictation, and I, I take that seriously. When you say take dictation, do you actually hear a voice, or do you feel it physically in your body, or how does it how does it come to you? It's a it's not it's something. This is it's a form of clairaudience. It's, in my opinion, it's telepathic, for lack of a better word. It's not like there's a voice in the room, like I'm hearing somebody in the next room saying, "Paul, come and take the garbage out." It's not like that. What it is, is it's a voice in your head that blocks out other voices and any chosen thought. Now, I first learned this, I learned about this or that I could do this when I was in my early 30s. And I was, I had started a form of energy healing and I was volunteering at a center in downtown Manhattan that was, had opened up to provide service for people with life-challenging illness. You know, it was the height of the AIDS epidemic and there were these places popping up. And I found that if I had my hands on somebody, you know, I've got my whole, you know, chatter in my head going all the time. And then occasionally through that chatter, something would burst out. Like I've got my hand on thinking about, you know, what I'm having for dinner. All of a sudden I would hear Reginald. And I don't know a Reginald. Like, a so vo I, like when you say you would hear it, it'd be like... It's a thought in a voice that is not your own or has a different quality or texture to it. So mm -hmm. I learned to say, who's Reginald? And the person would say, that's my husband, my son, my lover, my father. And as I kept getting the proof of the information, I started to become willing to trust it. So I'm a radio. If you think of a radio and broadcast... My consciousness is operating here. When I channel, I'm actually turning the dial, say, just an, uh, an iota, because that's all you have to do to switch the station on a radio, to their station, and then they come through. That's then what I play. I'm still present, but I'm receded. Did you have to learn how to do that in a way? Did do you get guidance on how to... I was taught through the doing way? of it. You know, I yeah. sat in my living room for 18 years with a small group of people doing this. You know, people think that I just showed up. And I get a little concerned because I think sometimes there are people that just show up that, you know, sort of haven't developed. But I was developed through doing this. And, you know, with a small group of people, many of them the same people for many, many years, I was doing this quietly. I didn't have, I wasn't looking to get a career at it, certainly. I didn't want people to know that I did it. When I finally got a website, I had a website without my name on it or my photograph because, and I only did that so that people could book readings because people kept asking for them. And it was like a speakeasy. You had to know the signal to get in, you know, to get into the club. So what I went through was a process of learning. And I'm very grateful for those people that sat there in this room with me for those years 
and were party to the evolution of this teaching. See, when I work, there's an energy that comes through that's very palpable for most people. And when I first started doing this, I wasn't trying to be a channel. I wasn't. I didn't believe in channeling necessarily. I had very little patience for this stuff. I'm not a very good new ager. But I sat there in the group expecting to do this energy work that my teacher had initially instructed me in. And all of a sudden, I started hearing things. No, I'm sorry, you, who was your teacher? My teacher was a woman named Ethel Lombardi, and she was one of the first 13 Reiki masters in the U.S. So she was a, a, a student of a woman named Madame Takata. And um, before that, Dr. Usai, I suppose. So there's, you know, if you're into that lineage stuff, I'm not, because when I was working with Ethel, she was doing something very different. It was called Marielle. She'd broken from the Reiki community and was doing this work that was about, you know, working with the divine feminine. So, but it was a hands-on modality. It wasn't a lot different than Reiki, and it has nothing to do with the work that I do now. But for me, it was an opening. And the opening was to my own work. So I sat in this group and all of a sudden my own work started coming through with instructions. And as I kept listening to the instructions and following them, the, the work progressed and it progressed over years. When, when that started happening for you, and you're talking to your friends or people who are in that group, for a lot of people when they start to have some kind of psychic opening, some kind of awakening like this, it can provoke a real crisis about, well, wait a minute, am I crazy? Like, what's going on well, here? How do I... Here's the difference with this, I think. First of all, the information that I was accessing was for other people. It wasn't for myself. So, you know, if you're, if you're working in a healing room with somebody and you're getting information for them and they're confirming the information, you get to trust the information. So I was getting validation for the work and I wasn't trying to do it. You can't try to do this stuff. It doesn't work that way. It, it's happened. And then I had to honor what was happening in an ongoing way. So the crisis, and because I was fortunate throughout most of, most of the years that I was working in, you know, mostly in a solitary way, I did have mentors who showed up periodically to support my development and give me feedback. And I still have a community of people that I work with whose work I respect enormously, who I will listen to. You know, These are other channels? They're not channels per se. They're other psychics. Some are mm -hmm. channels. Mm -hmm. You know, they're people that are working in comparable ways, I think, but in different modalities and have different specific gifts that they work with. But I find that helpful. I didn't have the, is this crazy? I know when I'm channeling and people watch me channeling, it looks crazy. And I don't even like to watch myself. I think it's just impossible to watch me work. But I work in the way that it comes through and I had to get over the vanity of it not looking appropriate. You know, once I was channeling and I was being interviewed actually, by um, Alan Steinfeld, and if you know, you know Alan. And Alan said, "Why don't you channel the right way?" And the guides came through, and they they laughed, and they said, "You know, basically, they said there's not a right way for this to be done. It's already crazy if you think about it. You know, I mean, that's again sort of deciding it should look a certain way, and there should be a style to it. So, mm -hmm. you know, that question I did. I mean, I have a lot of 
experiences that were learning experiences. I remember when I was opening up empathically at the beginning, and I didn't know what that was because I, I nobody had told me this stuff, you know. I remember sitting on the subway and like my shoulder started to hurt and I looked at the man next to me and had a shoulder in a cast and I realized I was feeling his shoulder. And, you know, then yeah. I started taking on the symptoms of people who were coming to me before they would walk in the door. I really? Was too, oh, yeah. It was hard. Initially, it was horrible. Like, I'm fine. All of a sudden, I'm running to the bathroom. And then 10 minutes later, somebody shows up with colitis, you know, and you're going, okay, that's what this was. Now, the good news <laughs> Insane. is- Well, it was interesting because it doesn't happen now. It happens sometimes- it happens when I work sometimes, but I'm not a medical intuitive and I don't have mm -hmm. a vocabulary for that. So sometimes I'll be in a workshop and I will feel pain. Somebody may ask a question. I'll tune into them and I'll feel pain in the breast tissue. Mm. But, you know, tumors and cysts feel very similar to me. They feel like pinches. Huh. Um, if somebody's undergone radiation, that's burning, and I feel that in the tissue. So I can, and I've been known to say to somebody, you know, I think there might be something going on there, and they'll say, yeah, I had a lumpectomy, or yeah, I had a cyst there, and it's all gone. I'm going, oh, phew, yeah, but I don't you, diagnose. The thing is, but I feel. You have such extraordinary sensitivity. And I'm wondering, was that something that you had when you were really young? Or yeah, is that I did, and I didn't know it. In retrospect, I did, and I didn't know it. Um, I mean, I had some psychic experiences as a child that were specific, but I wouldn't have thought of myself as psychic. When you say psychic experiences, like you suddenly... I had an out-of-body experience when I was small that I remember vividly still um, because I was taught in the, the experience. I mean, there was this thing hovering over my bed by the side of my bed that was glowing gold. And all I remember was it was wearing what I thought were robes because it was there was embroidered, it was ornate. Because I could see that from the level of the bed that I was lying in, lying on my side, looking up at this thing was hovering beside me. And the next thing I knew, I was floating on the ceiling, looking at myself in the bed, having this conversation with this being. And I know I was being taught and I don't still don't know what was being said. You don't remember me. that part? No. How I was there. I was out. I was, I would have been about, I would have probably been five I called it an angel at the time. You know, I think I told my mother that it was an angel or whatever it was. So I had that. I dreamt about um, Goddard College when I was 13 without knowing, when I was nine. When I was nine years old, I had a dream that I was walking up a stone flight of stairs to this oddly shaped fountain full of autumn leaves. When I was 13, my family was, and I remembered it because I would, nine sucked for me. I had a bad nine, you know, but this dream happened. And then when I was about 13, my family was driving through Vermont and I started having deja vu when we hit this town called Plainfield. And then we ended up at Goddard College. My mother actually knew somebody who had something to do with it. And you ended up being... In that, I, I saw the steps and I went up to the fountain and I saw it at 13. Wow. And I was like, that blew my mind. And, and then, then you ended up working there. I got called out of the blue when I was about 31 years old to apply for a job there. And I taught there for years and I ended up running a master's program there for 18 years. And now I'm on the college's board of trustees. So there's an odd agreement there, but my work as a channel was developing in those years in a very specific way. So I gotta ask then, did you feel from the time you were very young that there was something different about you? 
Yeah, but I was a gay kid and there was, you know, I mean, there was something different. That was at a time when, you know, you could be locked up. You know, it was still in the DSM-3 as an illness. I'm 57 now. To be a child in the 60s, it was a crazy time. So the difference, yeah, I felt different and I was highly sensitive and I was artistic and all of those things. But I think most people will tell you that they felt different when they were growing up. Well, know? yeah, there's, okay, well, there's different maybe was not the right word. Was there a sense that you had a, a special connection? No. No, I think that I, I believed at some level that there was something that I was here for. And I knew that. And I felt for a long time that I had either missed that opportunity or whatever. The funny thing was when I was at Goddard during those years, and they were challenging years, many of them, when I, I, I felt the whole time that I was there that, you know, because I had dreamt about this place when I was nine and now I was here, maybe I was where I was supposed to be anyway. And in retrospect, I was. The books that I do would not have come if it wasn't for Goddard. One of the, one of the faculty members, Victoria Nelson, who's a wonderful writer, called me um, and said, Paul, I think it's a good, this would be a good time for you to write a memoir about how you became clairaudient. And I had had, ter I had been blocked as a writer for years. So I was like, I, I said, no. And the guides piped in and said, no, we have a book to write. And if you take two weeks, we'll do it. And Victoria was on the phone. She's in Berkeley and I'm in Manhattan for the first three books or so. They were dictated literally in my office or in my apartment, recorded with somebody on the phone. Now they're all done in front of groups of people, right. but the but, process hasn't changed. But you feel like really it was Victoria's prompt that kind of kick-started the whole process for you? I think the books, yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. the lectures had begun, the, the guide's lecturing had begun within that year. And that began after I quit smoking. I was a heavy cigarette smoker. And when I quit smoking, um, which the guide said I had to, they said, you know, we, we'd love to keep working with you, but you're going to have to deal with this. Basically, if we're going to progress you. And I did stop and I needed to. I was like a four pack a day guy. Um, once I stopped, my energy system just opened up like crazy. And that's when they started to lecture. So, and, and my sensitivity, you know, if there's anything that one can do to diminish one's sensitivity, I've done it over the course of my life. I actually was wondering about that because also, I mean, I know we've talked about this before. You had, you, you would drink, you were doing things yeah. when you were younger that really would dull your awareness in a way. Yeah, happily so, you know. I mean, you know, I quit drinking when I was 25 and that's when I started opening up psychically. That was the beginning, you know. So um, I'm cautious still, you know, about uh, things that will numb me out. You know, it's just it's not it doesn't it's not effective for my work. It doesn't mean I don't get that doesn't mean I don't get to relax. Well, now you're you're comfortable with your work, but maybe it was before. I mean, I'm just well, sort of I throwing this I out there. I didn't equate this. I mean, I yeah. I yeah, I mean, you know, it when you're highly sensitive, and I think a lot of people who self-medicate probably are, you know, it's it's a way to manage sensitivity. You know, I somebody once said, I don't know who it was, that alcoholism is a low-grade spiritual search. You know, it's not the highest way there. I don't recommend it. But, you know, for me, when I 
wasn't trying to check out was when things started to happen. And I had to sit through an enormous amount of uncomfortability for many years as a result of that. You know, I don't understand. I mean, there are people, I suppose, that just find spirituality and blossom, you know, and it's all rainbows and unicorns. That was, for me, it was like throwing up over everybody for three years. It was messy and challenging. And to go from living in a world where there is no such thing as God, which was how I was raised, to keep getting evidence that, in fact, there was was mind-blowing and challenging and painful and confusing. But actually, I think that's a really common experience now among the folks that are in the evolver world, that they're coming from a secular materialist place. Like me, I came from a totally secular materialist place. Mm -hmm. And then there there are these sort of crack-in-the-sky moments where suddenly it's like, whoa, this is not what I expected. Yeah, and it's really disorienting, and it can thro- be destabilizing. Well, and it is. It takes it, a while to process. It that. is if you're con- trying really hard to maintain a mask or an identity that you've just had the experience may be fraudulent. You know, then it's misery to wear the mask. In my case, I went from you know a somewhat middle class existence. I think I can say that. I mean, we weren't wealthy by any means, you know, but we weren't starving. And I, you know, made my way through college. You know, I worked in a bar in the West Village and then I made my way through Yale, you know, and I wrote my plays and I was getting, I was getting the career, the life that I thought I should have. When I was 25, I had a list of things that I thought were important that I would make me okay in the world. And I wanted to be produced in New York and London. I wanted a Good Times review. I wanted, it was a shallow list in retrospect, but it was all glitzy professional stuff. And the last thing was I wanted to be an interview magazine so I could get a really cool date. (laughs) And there is a photo of me, an interview with my platinum blonde Billy Idol hair that was taken. But by then I'd cleaned up my act. But I think I got the call to be in that right before, you know, the crap hit the fan. So I got the list of what I thought would make me okay, And it didn't. It just didn't. And I was suddenly, you know, out of school for the first time in my life with no real idea of how to make a living outside of, you know, singing in a piano bar, you know, or whatever I was doing in college. And and it was challenging. I mean, I'm so grateful and really, really grateful that I love teaching. I loved it. You know, I got asked again. I mean, I didn't look for any of this stuff. This Somebody asked me and they sent me to a college. It was something called the Young Playwrights Festival. And they used to send, maybe they still do send artists out into the public schools. And I got sent out to some of the toughest schools in the city. And I had the most remarkable experience. And the teachers in those classrooms were like gods. They were incredibly sort of evolved people. And the kids were astonishing. And I realized that if I was going to show up for these people, I better be prepared to do my work because they deserved it, you know. And I became a good teacher, you know, as a result. And I did it lovingly for years. Well, you're you're a very strong teacher of the guide's work. Well, it's a different thing because I've had to learn that. You know, if you had come to a workshop with me five years ago, which is when I, you know, I've been only doing them since the 
2011, seven or eight years, really, but I've been doing these workshops with the guides publicly. If you had come early on, I would have said hello. I would have told a five-minute version of my biography so people would know who I was. And then you wouldn't hear me again until the end of the week, and I would say thank you for coming. I literally didn't speak as myself. You, you were just channeling the there whole channel. time. I was channeling the whole time, and the guides would take questions. What began to happen finally was they started pushing me forward a bit, and I began to be in a position to interpret some of the teachings. So I'm not an expert on the books, but you know, I some of the questions are asked frequently. And when somebody says, well, Paul, what do they mean when they say, I can often answer that now. And if I can't, they're going to jump in and tell, tell everybody what to, what's going on, because they're very good at that. They'll often let me answer a question and they'll say, thank you very much, but, and then they'll answer it as they wish it to be answered. So I feel like they've supported me in, in, in coming forward with the work as well. And I'm grateful for that because, you know, if I'm just channeling and I'm grateful for the channeling, but it's a, a little bit like being, um, I don't want to say a ventriloquist puppet, but there can't be, there's not great gratification. I mean, it's like the radio doesn't get to dance to the music that's playing. And my job is to be the radio. And you all get to dance. I'm there rendering, 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 and speaking, speaking, speaking. Well, you're doing that, but you're also asking questions that guys are continually responding to your own have to, your reaction yeah. to what they're saying. Well, that's what does happen. And this, you know, sometimes I say, you know, when I'm channeling, it's like I'm getting into the backseat of the car. I mean, that's actually my meditation. When I before I start, when people would do just a little prayer protection when I start, as that's happening, I'm imagining myself crawling into the back seat of a car. Sometimes I pick up a magazine and read it in the back seat. I'm lying in the back seat and giving the wheel over to the guides. So I'm basically receded. And as I'm lying in there in the back seat and they're going talk, 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 talk occasionally I will hear something that I'll go, hey, wait a minute, I, I just heard that, what was that? Or what does that mean? And that's the equivalent of my leaning over the back seat and saying, hey, what did you just say? You know, and then they, 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 they for the most part, they'll say, Paul is interrupting, Paul is asking, um, or Paul has a question. What they've begun to do, which I'm actually very grateful for, is they've begun to um, presuppose the question before I've even formed it. So they'll, they'll ask the question in my voice, say, Paul has a question. Well, I was about to have a question, but I hadn't quite formed it yet. And they'll say, he is asking, and then they'll lay it out so that they can answer it. And the reason they're doing that, especially in the books, is to maintain the trajectory of the book. There was one book that they delivered. It was called The Book of, the book of Knowing and Worth. And I was really pissed off at somebody one day that I had a, a channeling session. And Victoria Nelson happened to be in the room with me at the time, which was the only time we've ever been in the same room for a book dictation session. And her sneakers squeaked on the floor and I panicked and I jumped down. I was like, there it goes, you know, that's it for the session. And they said, no, we're going to continue and we'll tell you whether or not this is going to be in the book or not. And they lecture, they, they just, what they ended up doing was speaking to the root of my anger and leaving that in the book. But I know for a fact that that wasn't the intended lecture. 
that they ended up having to sort of reshape the manuscript to accommodate this. And that's very much in agreement to the rules that I don't get to go back and cut things. You know, either it's in the book or it's not. So they kept it in the book. That's how it works. But I'm half listening and I'm responsible to this only at the level that it's not my information, but my name is attached to it. And so if my name is on a cover of a book and there's something that I really am so challenged by, I'm going to have to question it. And I've been told by readers that that's helpful to them because they're often having the same questions at the same time. Yeah, I, I actually thought that the guides found it really valuable to have you ask these questions because it helps them elucidate things for a human audience that needs clarification often, about some of these points. Often, but other times they'll say, Paul has a question, we will take it later. And huh. I'm actually very happy when they do that because it reminds me that they're in charge anyway. And even if I don't know what they're talking about, they're going to get to the point. And usually by the end of the lecture, I have understood what the intention was. I have a question around how you relate to, quote unquote, the guides mm-hmm. as this group mm-hmm. that is not you. Mm-hmm. Because as I get deeper in my own understanding, my own wor- weird way of seeing Mm-hmm. how spiritual energies work with mm-hmm. incarnate people. Mm-hmm. That line of division sometimes can get a lot more murky. Mm-hmm. Is that a device that's valuable to you, that helps you maintain an appropriate relationship to the work? Or is this you know, something that maybe is changing over time, that you start to maybe get a sense that there's a deeper interconnection relationship between this person incarnated self and these energetic forces that are, well, like I said in the, in the most recent book, the one that just was published, the Book of Freedom, that you've done this before. Yeah. Well, that's what they've said to me. I've worked with them before. This isn't a new relationship. This is ongoing. Previous lifetime. The few past life memories I have around this kind of thing aren't all that pleasant. We can get into that some other conversation. But the idea of of identity already is a questionable thing. And, you know, the, the the personality self, they say, is an idea. You know, and it's it's a compilation of a lot of history and societal impact and when we were born into the world and all of those things that makes up the idea of who we are. I don't get that they operate in personality in the same way, but I do think that they use it as an opportunity that is recognizable to me. Do you understand this? Yeah. So when I first, there was a period when I was channeling, it was around the time of the second book, And the recordings are really interesting for that because an accent began to emerge. And some days to me, it sounded Scottish and some days it sounded British. And it was like, what the hell is this? And then it landed. And the entire book was dictated in that voice. And occasionally I'll channel and there'll be a booming British voice that comes out. Now, and my question was at the time, well, do they have British accents or did was this created for me? I mean, to understand the division. I mean, I really don't know. And basically I didn't know, no, this is us. This is what I got. 
But I also realized that when I was channeling, and this is back when I was doing stuff in my apartment, I always used to be relieved when the guy with the accent showed up because I trusted it. And the cadence of the language was so clear and the word choices. But the funny thing is, if you read the texts, the sentence structure is all comparable. The word choices are all comparable. I've never called anybody my fellows in my life. But the guides will often say, you and your fellows, you know, that's their language. Period, 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 they say all the time. I've never said it in my life. I mean, to me, it's, why would I say that? In the fifth book, the book of truth, that actually, the entire book felt like it was delivered by a different guide. If you hear the recordings of that book, and a lot of that was delivered at Esalen in front of students, it's so careful and so thoughtful. It's literally, if you listen, it was like I was reading a book that was already written. And I was just, it was that simple, 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 all the way through. But this guide kept saying, dears, we'd like you to know dears. And it's like, I like, I've never said dears in my life. And I'm now I've got to put up a whole book where that's a vocabulary word. Somebody actually wrote me, I don't know who it was. I got some email from somebody saying, please tell your guides not to use the word dears. <laughs> but I also got an email once from somebody saying, Paul, tell your guides to stop using the word Christ because it's turning a lot of people off and you you need to stop the whispering and repeating because you're not marketable. And I thought, what a load of horse shit. First of all, if I had any choice in, in the language, it would be something else. And I don't think that the guides know what branding is or could ever care less, you know? That's some other idea. None of this work is convenient. It's not convenient to me. It's not convenient necessarily to the reader because it tends to challenge our sense of who we are. So my experience visually has been primarily of one guide that I've seen who appears in a very specific way to me when I see him. And I'm grateful when I see him. And I think if I had a better meditation practice, I'd probably see him all day long. But I don't. I'm I'm a lazy channel. Do you, you know? meditate? Not like, no, I really don't. Did you ever have a meditation practice? I had a practice in my 30s, which was mostly about clearing energy. So it wasn't so much. I mean, I was working very, very, very diligently for a number of years. And in retrospect, I think that work paid dividends. I really did oh, yeah. support my availability to what I'm doing. But I'm channeling so much. I mean, I do an average of, I'm channeling every, you know, an average of three weekends a month and every Wednesday nights, plus my private practice. And the guides have delivered probably, I don't know how many thousands of pages of material. I mean, what's in the books, and that's seven books, quadruple that because they're lecturing all the time anyway. And it's always different. It's always ongoing. And the meditation in some ways has become the experience of channeling. I have a question I've been thinking about a bit. The books lay out a practice. Is it a religion? No, and it's not a practice either. Um, I mean, I think people want to practice because they want to attach to it. I don't think it's a practice in a formal way. I think it's, it may be a system and a system of development. There are six books in print and the seventh on the way. They all build on each other. 
And I know that people enter into the book late in the series, and that's fine. The guides say they teach in a one-room schoolhouse, and they catch people up. But it's not a religion, and they say explicitly in the books that it can and won't be. That's not the purpose of this. What makes it not a religion? I suspect what makes it not a religion? Because there's, I mean, if you come at the books without... You know, they answered it once, and I don't remember what the answer was. They don't tell anybody what to do. If you haven't noticed this, if you read these books, they don't tell anybody what to do. They're honoring free will. They don't want your authority. I don't want your authority. The moment somebody tries to give me authority, I give it right back to them. I am not interested in that bullshit that comes with that level of of importance that people can ascribe themselves, you know, to themselves. The guides really don't want it. This is a teaching about being. It's a teaching of realization. It's a realization of who you truly are, not who you think you want to be, and not what it's like to be spiritual, which is usually some other ego-based idea. I'm going to be enlightened first in my lifetime when I say so. I mean, I think that's still personality stuff. I think the unfoldment that they're teaching is to the individual. And I know that they're teaching to the collective now. I mean, they're teaching, you know, the Book of Freedom is all about moving beyond collective structures of limitation that we've all gone into agreement with, what it means to be a man or a woman or wise or foolish or all of these things that are born in cultural heritage and the mores of history. And, you know, religion, they they say, and they're not opposed to religion, they say at the essence, at the core of every religion is the same truth. But what's been built on top of that tends to be structures that are political and economic and often fear-based. So, you know, I, I get cautious sometimes even in the spiritual community, when people are talking about my tribe and my this or my that, which tends to invoke separation by nature of the idea of it and start supporting again the idea of separation. The guides say again and again and again, you can't be the light and hold another in darkness. And what you damn, damns you back. They've said it so many times in so many ways. They say the, you know, the, the action of fear is to claim more fear. And separation is fear-based. You know, and we live in... And so the idea of a religion, I suspect, would decide that it's a religion which would make something else wrong, which is not what they teach. You know, I, I don't think... I, I wish I remember the word that they used to say why it was never going to be that and could never be that. Um, and I hear that there's no point to it. It's not the purpose of the teaching. If you were to put into a sentence what the purpose of the teaching is, can they do that? I, well, I can tell you what I hear. I hear it's the realization of the true self, the divine as you, the divine as you, who has come in form. They're saying for the benefit of the world, it's always been the teaching. It has always been the teaching, what can be and will continue to be, period, in the same period. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. They had done this before and if you had been here before as a channel for this teaching why is it necessary to why didn't it work before why are you why did you have to come back or why is this well, a continuing all, I project i don't know that i was a channel before and i don't know that you could you have to be a channel to work with guides that are supporting a teaching the few i mean i'd say i mean i'll say it you know when I was, God, this is again back when I was in my 30s, I was called on to jury duty and I was actually excited to do my service, you know, and I'd never done it before. And I, I think I put on a clean shirt and I went downtown and I was going to do my thing. I had anxiety the entire time I was in the court. I got chosen for a jury. I was melting down. I kept thinking, Paul, what the hell's the matter? You're not on trial here. What's going on? And then I had this dream. Uh, and I think it was right, probably the same, right at the same period of some guy, I knew he was gay in a red beanie and a big frilly collar and some monk with a great big, he had a put on and a big nose and they were both being arrested, you know, by guards. And the character that I perceived I, I was or that I thought I was, which was the beanie one who I identified with, was being very grand about it. One of the guards stuck a stake through him and the guy actually broke the stick in two, made a cross and laid back very grandly on it, like my martyrdom. I was, I was you know, high drama in this dream. I'm Whoa. like, what the hell is this? I forgot about that, but I started hearing in meditation this name and I kept hearing Mirandella. You know, and I kept thinking, well, that's like an Italian restaurant on Carmine Street, right? What's that? But I kept saying, then I heard, look it up. And this is pre-internet, so it wasn't so easy, but I found the name. And it was a guy who was writing in the 1500s, who was on trial before the Inquisition for years. And I just only, I only found this out recently and was gay, which I didn't know until, because that just came out in some article in The New Yorker. It was really interesting stuff. And the monk, I later found out, because I remembered him vividly, was burned in the town square of Florence. It was, you know, it's a very famous execution. Oh, my God. So I don't know if I was in that crowd or I was one of those folks, but that's the heritage of playing with mysticism. You used to get burned at the stake for it. Or murdered for it, you know. I don't, I mean, thank thank God all my psychic friends say, Paul, don't worry about that. That doesn't happen in this lifetime, you know. But I have to say every time I've taken another step forward and being visible in this work, I've waited for somebody to throw a rock, you know. Well, this is powerful stuff that is coming through here. And when you engage with it, as it asks to be engaged with, it leads people to a very different understanding of what it is to be an engaged, healthy person, both in their own understanding of themselves, but also in society. Yeah, it does. It really does. And I'm not saying I've done it yet. You know, I don't, I don't know that I'm the best student of the work. I show up for it anyway, in spite of myself, um, in spite of my 
worries about anything. I doubt I'll ever get another job in academia again. There's too much video of me channeling, and I don't care, truthfully. Well, yeah, but this is one of the things I most admire about you is that you're all in. You really are going after this. You have organized your life around this mission, the mission that you felt you had when you were younger, which now is manifest. You're giving me a lot more credit than I deserve. Why is that? Because I show up. This area of my life has been given to me. Everybody that's shown up in support of this work has shown up from the guy, Dustin, that I travel with, who's my friend, um, to the person who organizes things, to the publishers. All that stuff has shown up. I haven't had a knock on any doors for this at all. And I don't feel driven. I do feel like I'm responsible for this. When sometimes people say, how do I get a career doing this? I go, I I don't know. And I don't think it's about getting a career. I think if you're real about this stuff, it's about showing up and doing your work in integrity. Often in spite of the fact, I mean, and you know, I did this again in my living room for years, sometimes with three people showing up with 10 bucks in a basket. I wasn't expecting more to come. So uh, the driven, I suspect if I had more of a personal life, maybe I wouldn't want to be on the road so much. But right now I'm enjoying that part of my life. It's an adventure for me and I'm a shy man by nature. And so this allows me to have this odd encounter that is ongoing. But truthfully, if I were to wake up tomorrow and realize that I had overslept through my my Wednesday NYU class and I'm still teaching there and this was all a dream, I almost wouldn't be surprised because this is so freaking remarkable that this has happened and unplanned, I have to say, deeply unplanned by me. Yeah. I mean, the guides talk about manifestation. Yeah. You don't feel like you're helping to manifest this? I'm showing up and I'm in alignment to the work that I do. In this area of my life, I suspect I am in agreement to what's before me. But I'm not outlining what it's supposed to be. I'm not out there trying to get something from this. I'm not. You know, I do trust that what comes is what's necessary to support the work. I have. I know that my part is to show up when I don't want to. I remember putting my dog to sleep, and she'd been my great companion for 12 years. I loved her dearly. And then having to go and channel two hours later in a live stream and doing it anyway. And it was an extraordinary teaching that came out. So it's not, it's about, I mean, there's a, there's a level of discipline that I think comes with this and an agreement to be there for it. The guides say we're always in, we're always manifesting. If you look around your life, everything in your life, you're in agreement to. It couldn't be there without your agreement. And there's the individual, you know, my job, my lover, my lack of lover, whatever it is. And then there's the collective, the things we all see together. We're all in collective agreement to the world we see, which means we're operating in resonance with it. The way that these things are transformed is by shifting the resonance. Because then you're changing what you claim, what you move into vibrational accord to. So the idea... 
I, I mean, I, I'm, I work hard. I show up a lot and I give myself credit for that. And I don't mind it and I don't resent it and I don't complain about it. You know, I'm grateful for what has been given to me at this level. Do I know what the trajectory of this is? Do I think one day maybe they'll just stop talking and I'll sit there in front of 100 people and I won't hear anything? I hope not because I know myself well enough that I would never do it again if that happened. I'd be scared out of my mind, you know? But if it does, I adjust. Do you understand this? I adjust. So, you know, if when it was so funny to me, you know, if somebody said to me recently, so where do you want to be in two years? I could say, well, I'd like to be in a relationship. I'd like to have a house someplace because I'm a little tired of Manhattan. You know, I'd like to live a different kind of life. I, these are things I would like, but I don't know where I'll be in two years. I don't know where any of us are going to be in two years. You know, how can I? And I do believe that we're given what we need in the moment we stand in. And the opportunity to create is always in the moment we stand in. Well, that's a huge teaching of the guys. It is. Is that the that creativity is vast at every moment and that consciousness, awareness can shift what's possible so fast as you work on your own yeah. vibration. It's all about realization. realization. It really is. If yeah. you re to realize something is to know to know it, to realize it is to know it. And once you know it, things change very, very quickly. You know, we, we become so reliant on our thinking and what we think should be based on the evidence we've been given about what was, that as the guides say, we're always dining out on yesterday's leftovers because that's what we expect to get. We expect the known, so we keep calling the known back into being, the known being history. You know, which is for my, in my case, what my mother said I was, what, you know, the education I had said I should be doing with my life, none of which I'm doing, by the way. You know, I mean, it makes no sense that I'm living the life that I'm living now. If you look at where I come from, it makes no sense at all. I was the least likely candidate. You know, I was a, maybe or maybe not, maybe it's a textbook example, but, you know, I was a rock and roll playwright with platinum blonde hair. I used to date some guy named Shannon who liked to bleach my hair with industrial bleach. When he used to give me a bottle of gin and like, I'm, I had blisters on my hair. I was like, that was a crazy <laughs> period of my life, you know? And now I'm, I'm, I'm living this other life, you know? And it's quieter. And but to it's me, it's This not, is quieter? This is quieter. To me, it's not strange. It's, it's ordinary. But the fact that I can tune into people and feel what they're feeling and hear what they're thinking, which is what I do in my private practice and in a lot of my workshops, that's ordinary to me because I've aligned to it. It's available. You see, nothing, nothing, nothing can be chosen until it's first a possibility. You see, and if I do anything for anybody right now, it's helped make things possible. They were already possible, but people just didn't know they had permission. So the work, the work that you're channeling, the books, opens up possibilities for people, yeah. shifts what their potential is. Do we all have the capability of being psychic? Yeah, I think we do. But I think that there's, I think that there are, there's innate capacity. I have the ability to run around the block. I doubt I have the ability to run a decathlon. 
the, I have the innate capacity to do many, many things. Is my body, is my energetic system, is whatever aligned to do that? Not necessarily. So I think you can develop at the level that you can develop as. I think I probably did come in with innate sensitivity, but I wasn't one of these people. I know people that were born psychic. They were seeing dead people at the breakfast table when they were five, and it's just been ongoing. Well, yeah, you say that, but you just mentioned that you, at five years old, you had this I had, vision. I had a couple of experiences. It's pretty good. No, it's not. I didn't consider myself psychic. I didn't consider it. It wasn't part of how I would have thought of myself in the world. It just wasn't. And I didn't really believe, I believed, I think that there, I mean, I, I you know, I always say I was raised an atheist. I, I was probably a bit more agnostic by choice, but I was raised to believe that stupid people believed in God, that it was, it was you know, things you kind of did if you were simple and stupid. I had the same thing. I had the same kind of raised the background. But, you know, and the, the, the good news was it left me without a lot of baggage. I didn't have a lot of feelings about religion I hadn't because I hadn't been party to them I had one weird year of parochial school um, and I only was sent there because it was cheap and my mother took me out of the school that I was in you know and sent me to the the cheaper school that had a couple had some nuns and I was there for a year before I was moved away someplace else but I didn't have much baggage and in retrospect that's a kind of intellectual snobbery that is endemic in this world, you know. You said in terms of their prejudices or thoughts? About, about spirituality and, and the idea of faith. It's very funny because I guess now that there are a bunch of books in print and, you know, like I've been written about enough or, you know, ABC News did a thing, you know, and it's like there's enough, I've been given enough credibility externally in the world. But there are people that I used to know that probably think I just went off the deep end. Or isn't that sad that he had, you know, when I first got into this stuff, people were like, wow, what happened to Paul? And what happened to Paul was he went on an unexpected journey. That's what happened to Paul. And what happened to Paul is he's still on it. And he still doesn't know how it ends or if it ends, and maybe it never ends. But none of this was expected. For me, coming from that in some ways was helpful. And in some ways, I suspect if I look back at my life and my early life, there was a longing for God or what you might call God, whatever it was, spirit, or that I would never have been able to articulate because... God wasn't on the menu. It didn't exist. Once you begin, anybody, anybody, because I'm not special with this stuff, and I believe that. But once anybody has their own experience of whatever you want to call God in a personal way, it changes everything. It really does. It's experiential. It's totally experiential. And it really can't be explained. And any way to try to explain it is to, in some ways, nullify it or to dumb it down or to reduce it. And, you know, I'm not saying that I walk around in a state of union all day long. I really wish I did. But I've been privileged a few times in my life to feel that presence so fully in my world and in my life. And it's unlike anything I've ever known. When was the first time 
you had that shot? I was about 29 years old. I was struggling badly and I wasn't sleeping. I, and I was really thinking that whatever I was supposed to be getting about all this stuff I wasn't going to get. I woke up one day, I prayed on it. Finally, I just sort of really found a prayer and I said it for three days and I let it go. I think somebody said, say this prayer for three days, it'll be answered. I was like, yeah, right. But at that moment, I had nothing else to go on. So I said, okay, why not? And on the third day, whatever I had been in was lifted, gone. And I, and I had, was so poor in those days. I maybe had like 45 cents to my name. I was sharing an apartment in the East Village. I think we were paying 350 between us. You know, it was, you know, it was, and I was grateful to be there, truthfully, because I didn't have anything. But I remember walking around the city so poor and knowing that I was exactly where I was supposed to be and knowing that everybody else was too. It was mine and it lasted about three days. And with this was this burning at the heart, this opening at the heart and this pulsing experience, which I live for. I've heard there's some French mystic that has written about this, the burning flame in the heart, and I have to read it because it's, it's fascinating to me that it's, 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 it's experiential to some people. That was the first time, and when it went away, and it did, and when it diminished, I felt so abandoned, you know. But what I feel is that whatever that experience was, it allowed the journey to continue. Do you understand that? Oh, yeah, it was enough. Sure. It was enough to keep things going. And, you know, the, the pain that I was in in those years, I'm no longer in. You know, it's not what it was. I'm not, you know, poor right now. I'm comfortable. You know, I have work that I care about. I have people in my life that support what I do and care about me personally, and I'm grateful for that. So, you know, things just continue to change. But that was the first experience. The guides have begun to talk about the upper room. Yeah. Which is a place of, let's say, a higher vibrational mm -hmm. experience. Yeah. And the books and the channeling that you do give people, the readers or the participants in the experience, the opportunity to feel it to feel what it's like to go there, mm -hmm. which is, I mean, I think for some people, it's a, it's a profoundly it is, yeah. spiritual experience of connection, mm -hmm. a little bit like what you're just talking about now. Yeah, it is. I mean, I'm, they, they've been teaching this thing, the whole book, the book that's coming out in August is all about the upper room. You know, it's where they take the readers to in the very first, in the prologue, they just, I mean, Boom, I read up to the upper room. At the end of the Book of Freedom, which just came out, there's they invite everybody over a threshold into a new into freedom. And that's where they start the next book. And that's in the upper room. Now, the upper room they describe as um as a higher octave. I mean, my guides don't I think they've used the word dimension maybe three times in all the years I've worked with them. And they use that, but they talk about tone and octave and vibration. They talk about this being a higher octave. They say any piece of music can be played or renowned in multiple octaves. And you're being renowned or rearticulated 
remade, renowned, re-expressed in this higher music in the upper room. And in doing so, you hold that tone. And that tone actually is what lifts the world. It's what claims a new world into being. Do you feel you're in the upper room? Sometimes I do. When How I'm working, do I do. When you're working, when, when I'm you're working, channeling. I do. But you know, my experience, today I did. I had a good day today. I wasn't worried. I well, you know, I today, I mean, it's a good day as a man is. Do I feel that I'm operating in the upper room all the time? No, I don't. Do I know how to get there? Yes. But, you know, the requirements for staying up there are fairly extraordinary. Yeah. What are they? Well, start off by not judging other people. You can't be the light and hold another in darkness. In order to lift to the upper room, and this is the whole next book, and I can barely wrap my brain around the teachings of this, you're really letting go of the ideas of what things have been. So they say, for example, you can't lift that terrible man or terrible woman to the upper room as long as you've decided that they're terrible because you've decided who they are and you're there, you're there in the lower vibrational accord with them. To know who they are is to know or realize the inherent divine that must be them regardless of what they do or present as. And that's a radical change of consciousness. The moment you do that, they are lifted with you. But I can't do that as my, oh, look at me, how great I am. I'm going to lift somebody to the upper room. It's, it's the opposite of that. You know, the guys use the term Christ in, in a lot of their books, among other terms, for the, the aspect of the divine. Their definition of Christ has always been the aspect of the creator that can be realized in material form. In manifestation is who and what you are, but they say as who and what everybody is. You see, you can't be this if it's not true for everyone. And that's where you get past that whole sense of specialness. And they, they said once to somebody in a workshop, and it was a, it's a teaching that I've never forgotten. They said to him or her, or the group, you don't become the Christ. The Christ becomes you which is the divine self incarnates as you. It's not the divination or the divinization of the ego. Do you understand this? Mm -hmm. So to be in the upper room, I expect, is to be holding that tone or that vibration. The claims that they've given us through attunement, um, and these are energetic attunements that work with language. I know who I am in truth. I know what I am in truth. I know how I serve in truth. I am free. I am free. I am free. They say are played when they're played together, they operate as a chord. And each attunement, each phrase actually carries its own energetic experience and people can experience them. You come to a workshop, they break them up. You can feel each one and what they do to the energetic field. But they say when the whole chord is played, that's the manifest self, that's the divine in manifestation. But these are levels of realization. So Paul, I don't know who, I'm not gonna say, Paul, I know who I am. I'm 57, I live in Manhattan, I have a dog, you know, I'm single, blah, 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 blah. I can just give the list of identifiers, but that's not who I am. And that's not who you are either. Do you understand that? Mm -hmm. So the claim, I know who I am, is the realization of the true self. I know the I am, the true self, knows who it is anyway. It knows who it is 
without the body, without gender, without the eye color, the age, or the socioeconomic status, or the politics, the religion, the eternal self is who they're speaking to. And that's the aspect of self that is realized in the upper room as who you are, and not at the cost of the ego. Maybe it is at the cost of the ego. I actually get it is, but but they're saying, but not in the way that you think. How is it different than the way you think? They teach basically what they've said about this, and they don't talk about ego. That's not that was my word, and they usually they don't use it. They talk about personality structure. They say the personality the personality self is assumed. You know, it's assumed by the true self, so it's put to use. It's just when I was in my early thirties, and I, I'm night. I always say this. I'm ninety nine point nine percent sure I heard this in channel. It was one of the first things I would have heard, and I wrote it down in a piece of paper and I put it in a book because I, I, I didn't understand it because I was struggling at the time. And what I heard was freedom will come when the throne relinquishes its king. And I didn't know what the hell that meant. Now I understand what it means. And what Who's, does it mean? Who sits in the throne? Is it the true self, the divine self, or is it the small self, the personality self? Who's running the show? So freedom comes when the true self or the divine self is the one who is claiming the world before him, not the one who's decided how everybody should be and how everybody should act and who he should be to them and all of those things that we think are so important here. Do you understand? Which really are transitory. It's not It's not about what we think it is. Well, that's, I mean, living with that awareness, essentially, that the things that we are raised to value in life yeah. are largely an illusion. Yeah, absolutely. It's challenging to hold that. Well, yeah, but you know, we're complicit to their structure. We're complicit to their creation. We're party to this shit. And until we realize that we're party to this shit, we're going to keep claiming it. We really are. You know, if I think that I am only worth what other people think of me or what I have in the bank, or you pick anything that people can decide makes them valuable or worthy, there's never going to be peace, ever, you know? I mean, it's always going to be measurable to something else. Now, the innate divine that must exist as everybody is who you truly are. Everything else are things that can be chosen and learned through. It's only the culture that we're living in that decides the value that things have. I mean, you know, I have a practice, and I'll tell you, people come all the time, and they say, well, I understand I know who I am, and I think I get I know what I am, but I don't know how I serve. And I go, what do you mean? Well, what's my career? The idea that how you serve is your career is extraordinarily American 2018. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. It is. 20 years ago, I don't think that that was the rubric, but it is now. And the guides say how everybody serves is how they're most fully expressed as the true self. And if you're called to action through that, you will know. You will know. You will be called into service through it. But it's not necessarily what you think it should look like. We're living at a time when the, when the structures that we've inherited so much power meaning to, which we've decided, you know, the government, the this, the that, it's all cracking right now. It's all cracking. Who are we without these things as we have known them? 
Do you know? I mean, there's tremendous opportunity here for change and for growth. Tremendous. Yeah. I just wanted to mention mm-hmm. that we've been talking with you during this podcast. We're talking with Paul, and you've been a wonderful teacher. You're teaching these ideas, this experience, very clearly and cleanly. Oh, thanks. You know, but I have, we haven't asked them. I haven't said, am I getting it right? And they'll probably, they could talk for another 20 minutes and correct everything that I've said. Well, I'm probably. curious, would they do that? Yes, I hear yes, happily. I would appreciate that. Let me see if I can do the idea. They're saying the idea of who you think you are, this is for Paul, this is for Paul and Harry, and how you are expressed, because actually in action, is actually in reaction to a world you live in, to a world you live in, and how you're experiencing yourself. We understand your answers. We understand your answers. We don't disagree with the intent. We don't disagree with the intent. The information is almost accurate. The information is almost accurate with the truth of the teaching, but the truth of the teaching is that who you are is that who you are is always expressing, is always expressing at the level of agreement that you have made, that you have made in the world you see before you. And the world you see before you is the agreement you've made, is the agreement you have made to a world to learn through, to a world to learn through, the world that you're learning through. The world that you are learning through is actually in transition, is actually in transition because you require it, because you require it. The collective requires change. The collective requires change. How this change is outpictured. How this change is outpictured, maybe you don't want, may not be what you want, maybe you would require, may be what you require, but it will be going through, but it will be what you will learn through and what you will learn from this. And what you will learn from this is what is important, is that what you thought was so important, what you believed was so special, what you believed was so special, what you thought you should have, what you thought you should have was never true, was never true. In truth, a lie will not be held. In truth, a lie will not be held. And the vibration of truth is here now, is here now in manifestation, in manifestation, what you see around you. And much of what you see around you is the reaction to truth, is the reaction to truth, which is disassembling, which is disassembling the illusions you've known, the illusions you known, you've known or the structures you believed in, or the structures you've believed in that are not known to, that are not inherently true. This is not convenient. This is not convenient, but it's essential. But it is essential to preach mankind to the progression of mankind. It will be ongoing sometime. And it will be ongoing for some time, for some time, period. And they're saying period. Oh boy, how long is some time? I'm not going to go there with you. See, everybody always wants to know, well, when? As if when, you know, I'm going to tell you this. I was doing readings once, this is years ago, when I first started my practice. And I got all these calls from very wealthy people living on the coast of California saying, I go to this other channel and they say that there's going to be an earthquake. And should I sell? <laughs> and I was like, oh my God. Well, first of all, I'm so crazy to go from one to the other. And I don't do that kind of predictive work. Don't you want a second? People want a second opinion. That was all it was. I know. And I said, listen, I'm not going to say the other person's wrong. I just don't get any. I don't get anything happening. You know, and this, and nothing did happen at that time. Those poor people now probably in Malibu had something else to contend with. Maybe they should have sold back then. I don't know. 
So let me say what they want to say. How long is Ken's question? How long it takes? How long it takes is really up to you, is really up to you and the collective and the collective. How much more do you want to go through? How much more do you want to go through before you rest time? Before you realize the change that change is an option. I'd be bullied into it. And you don't have to be bullied into it by your creations, by your creations. Period, 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 period. So the change that's happening that feels like it's cracking at the traditional inherited society at the seams is inviting a lot of freak out and violence at this moment. Yeah, nobody knows what to do with this stuff is what I get. Mm -hmm. I mean, people are, you know, the action of fear is to claim more fear. And we rely upon the known. We find our security in the known, even if the known hasn't really been working. You know, I did this podcast a month or so ago with um, J.P. Sears. And at the end of the podcast, he asked about uh, the president and the, and the culture. And I said, well, they're not going to answer this, you know, because they don't, they've never talked about a political figure by name ever. They actually talked about the times and they basically said, you know, what you're seeing now has always been present. It's just been hidden. And what you're sort of beginning to experience now is what happened when the cover gets pulled off the bed and the bed bugs are exposed. Now you have to deal with what you've been with all this time. Yeah, which, is were... to, which is to say that the American government under Trump has been is continuing to act in the way the American government has acted in quite for quite a while. I don't know that they're were... talking necessarily no? about government. I think they're talking about the consciousness of the country Conscious well, as much as anything else, which mm -hmm. is... You know, I, and that's a whole other thing and what it means to be a conqueror or what it right. I mean, look at it. I mean, if you look at the violence in this country right now, it's 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 a reflection of the consciousness in the country as much as anything else. So your original question, which is, you know, people are acting out in fear. Yeah, they are. But again, the action of fear is to claim more fear. So how should people react when you see this, when you see things happening that feel violent towards you, when you get triggered by, let's say, the way that the government is doing X, Y, or Z, if you're feeling targeted, if you feel like they're coming after you and your sense of what it is, you know, what's the right way to help others? What I want to say is you can only respond at the level of consciousness that you hold. Do you understand this? So the guy that doesn't know how to be reasonable might throw a punch first. Do you know what I mean? Because that's the level of consciousness that he can agree to. Now, what the guides I suspect would say is you realize the divine in what you see anyway, the inherent divine that must be present in spite of appearance, because to deny the presence of the divine in anything is to put something outside of God. And if there is God, it must be all things and not just the things that you happen to agree with personally, socially, socially, politically, all those things, because that's more division. Do you understand this? So just to be on the right side, I mean, my politics are my politics. I don't agree with the politics of, of other people often, do you know? But that's not the point here. The point is the realization of truth. 
and the divine that must be present in all things. I think that's where they would go to. And let me just let them answer this. We'd like to say one thing. They're saying, we would like to say one thing. What do you see before you? What you see before you is what you're going to do, is what you are in agreement to and the true self as you. And the true self as you, who has come, who has come, is bearing, is bearing witness to great change. Allow change to come. Allow change to come. Learn through the change. Learn through the change. Don't pick up sticks and and throw them at your neighbor because you don't like what they're doing. Realize that the divine. Realize that the divine must be present in your neighbor, must be present in your neighbor, and their actions may be misguided, and their actions may be misguided. But the realization of who they are will support change, will support change more than silencing them, more than silencing them or getting your way, or getting your way. You may say this, yes. They're saying I may say this. Something that they've taught which I find helpful as you know, they say self-righteousness is always the small self. It's always the personality. Always, always, always. And it's an easy way for me to catch myself when I'm being self-righteous is to, to know that I'm coming from that aspect of myself, which isn't the higher one. The books lay out ways that people can participate mm -hmm. by repeating these phrases repeating, you know, doing certain kinds of things, but you're saying it's not really a practice per se. And I'm wondering, is it developing more in that direction where people can really know, like, if I go X, Y, and Z after reading through the books? I don't know that it will do things? that. I think, I think you can read the books, and I think you're going to be changed by your encounter with the books, but does that mean you're going to do the work of the books? Not necessarily. You know, the books are work. But if they do, if you follow the books as... Yes, I hear you'll have the experience at the level that you can hold it. I distinct. So the level that somebody can hold it means what, what's appropriate to them in their development, what they can manage. You know, I mean, you don't put 100 watts of light into a 20-watt bulb. You don't do that, but you do support the person in holding more and what they, they can. and what the what that then does for the reader is they get there's an energetic shift that happens yeah. for them it move yeah. into a into a into a place where they're more receptive to a certain kind of higher vibrational yeah, energetic yeah it does that's my understanding the books are energetic transmissions that work with the reader and so uh, there's a review that just came out on Amazon today it was interesting for the new book and this guy says um, he's a scientist and he comes from a background, you know, labs and he's a trained scientist. But he was talking about the empirical evidence of his experience with the book. And he's having these sort of profound experiences with the world he lives in as a result of this teaching. Now, I know who he is because he's come to workshops and he's shared things like it before. So I was like, wow, it's still happening for this guy. The difference was, I didn't, I don't know what happened. I just read the review. It was just posted. I guess this guy was driving in a car with his sons and they were playing the audio book and they all had an experience in the car, you know? And he, I think the headline was something like, this is basically, I can't believe this is really happening kind of stuff. So people are reporting these things in an ongoing way. Are they requirements for having an experience with a book? No, I don't think so. My reluctance around the teaching of practice and the word practice is people like rules and they want systems to apply. Like, well, if I mean, I can't tell you how many times I'm in a workshop and somebody says, well, are, are we still allowed to eat meat? 
<laughs> you know what I mean? As if that there's a prerequisite. And the guides say, well, when it's not appropriate for you to eat meat anymore, you won't do it. Uh-huh. You know, it won't be there, you know. But the idea that we're going to get a posture for these things, and that that's going to solve things, I think is 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 perhaps immature. Now, the claims of truth that they work with, those are energetic attunements. So it's not saying the words, it's the, it's the idea. If you're a radio, what the guides are doing with this language is supporting the radio that you are and attuning to the higher broadcast. They're tuning the radio up to play what's already present in the higher octave. So saying the words will tune you up. You may have the full experience of the energetic field shifting as you do that. Many do. But is that a lifting of consciousness itself? Not, I don't know if it is. No, no. It's, it's the availability to what exists at that level of consciousness, which still requires that you align to it. Which so, is a, involves free will, choice. It does involve free will and choice. It does. I mean, I'm just thinking about, I'm extending the metaphor because I'm getting agreement to it. You can be skipping through the radio stations and you can hear a glimmer of a song and then flip right back to the old one. Now you've been attuned to play the new. The radio will always now have that dial there for you. You know what it feels like. It's not that you know what it feels like. You also know how to get there, Mm -hmm. which is the, the language will support you in that. All of the books hold these attunements. And my understanding is they're there and they work. And when we do them in a group of people, people all experience it. It's, it's, it's fundamental to the teaching. So in, you know, in the mystical world in which we kind of operate, uh-huh. people will talk about having an awakening experience. Mm-hmm. Is this a version of that? They're saying yes and no. It can be. They're saying it can be. For one who is deeply asleep, it can be enormous. It can be enormous. For someone who is awake, it's more light. It's more light, more awareness, more awareness, more potential, more potential. We wake people up in our own way. We wake people up in our own way as we are allowed to, as we are allowed to, not as the individual have it, not as the individual would have. Those who want to be the wake most, those who want to be the wake most or usually aspiring to something are usually aspiring to something for a need to escape, for a need to escape or need to gain or a need to gain an awakened state, an awakened state, or as we would say, or as we would say, a realized state is the awareness of who you are, is the awareness of who you are, what you may know yourself as, what you may know yourself as beyond the small self, beyond the small self, the inherited structure she's known herself through, and the inherited structure she has known herself through. There is a teaching we give you. There is opportunity for this through the teachings we give you. The guarantee is not there. The guarantee is not there. You may learn a piece of music. You may learn a piece of music, but never sing the song again, but never sing the song again to learn this music. To learn this music is to sing the song of it, is to sing the song of it in your experience of yourself, in your experience of yourself, world, and your experience of your world, period. And they're saying, period. In the consciousness scene, for many people, that moment of opening to these kinds of energies has a very dramatic quality. And it can, as we were talking about before, really become very a disorienting experience. Yeah. And what it sounds like from what you're saying is that the guides offer a less dramatic way well, I mean, if you're of talking encountering about the this. consciousness community, if you're talking specifically about you know, experiences with plant medicine or something that is 
sort of larger. I don't know. That's not been my path. My my experience with people that I work with that come from that is some of them have integrated very well, and other people don't know what the hell to make of anything after the fact. And their understanding of themselves has been shattered, but they don't have a grounding to be able to work with that. I mean, there are people who've said that, and I've had clients who showed up saying, you know, when I read your books, it's like everything that I experienced when I was in a ceremony with plant medicine. It's like the same stuff and the guys are speaking it. So maybe it is a way to ground the experience, you know, and there are certainly supporters of this teaching from within that community and in the shamanic community who are really working with this stuff. I mean, I first heard from a nun, you know, actually, that was in a workshop of mine. She said, she, she's a wonderful woman. She heard about the teachings um, in Brazil during a, during a ceremony, was given the book there. Um, and the guy that was working with the book was actually doing the invocations as part of the ceremony. And they were watching, and he was watching the energy transmute. I mean, it was amazing. And I've become friends with him, Jose Stevens. So, you know, it's it's very it's interesting stuff. So I don't know that this is gentler or different or whatever it is. I, I don't think though, for me, first of all, I think we have to divest from the idea of drama and that it should be dramatic. You know, if it's going to be dramatic for somebody, maybe that's what they need. But I was a drama queen and there were periods when I was newer to this stuff, when I had an investment in the big experience. I wanted everything to be a big rooftop experience and I'd had sort of one, so I wanted another. When I was doing this group in my apartment, and this was, again, back in my early 30s, right when I started, and there were a lot of people showing up originally because it was a new thing. And I had a big group in my apartment in a circle, and there was some guy that was brought there for the first time um, by a, a friend who was a regular. And the new guy was kind of nice looking, and I was like, didn't know if he believed in this stuff. And the guides went around, and I said, oh, I want this guy to feel the energy. I really, it was my ego. I really want him to feel this. And the guides went around the room, and they worked on each person. They got to this guy. They brought through the energy, and I said, did you feel it? Did you feel this? And he didn't answer. He passed out in his chair <laughs> and was turning gray. And people picked him up and walked him around the room. There was this guy, Jeffrey, there running around the room screaming, we're all going to die. We're all going to die. It was crazy. And, and he was fine. And it's very funny in retrospect. But since then, I said, no more drama no more drama. And when people come to my workshops and they have their big dramatic experience, they're, they're often people that are have decided they're going to have a big dramatic experience. Do you understand that? It's not authentic to the experience. The, the experience of the energy can be extraordinarily powerful, but it's also very loving and very safe. And so I, I'm not discounting people that do have these great big things. I mean, if I've been, ex and I've met many people who've enorm you know, benefited enormously from these cracks in the ceiling that open up the sky and the whole ceiling falls and then they're still looking up at the sky going, wow, this is amazing. But they have, I guess, the ability to hold that and not run around saying, well, where's the shelter now? You're not going to find the shelter in the known when the ceiling goes away. You find something else. 
This work is very safe. This work is safe. Yeah, there's a barometer, which is your ability to receive it. Right. But what's it was, which is interesting because for many people, the spiritual path, that opening path, has a lot to do, can have a lot to do with going into the shadow and yeah. working with darker material. But it's almost like what the guides have framed is a is a way of moving into a higher vibration where you're essentially releasing fear in an almost abstract way. You understand what fear is, let it go, without looking at or even giving any direct attention to what it is that's creating fear. I don't agree with that, actually. I mean, that sounds like bypassing. Okay. And I don't think that's what they teach at all. You're oh. basically going to encounter your stuff as you move beyond it. You don't just get to forget that it's there. Okay. So if I'm going to break through the ceiling, I'm going to probably encounter what, what that ceiling is. So it's not that, I think the difference is, is that they don't attach to narrative in the same way. So the idea that I'm not what happened to me when I was a kid is true, but that doesn't deny that something happened to me and I may have some work to do around it. Okay. Do you understand the difference there? Mm -hmm. So it's not pretending. And I think that they, a lot of the book stuff talks about this. And I may be wrong, not really. They're saying not really would say differently. They're saying we would say it differently. Trauma may be encountered. Trauma may be encountered through this work, through this work, maybe so beyond it. And you may realize yourself beyond the lessons from it and learn the lessons from it that they came to teach you, that they came to teach you. Nothing is outside of love. Nothing is outside of love except that which you place there, except that which you place there, the attachment to fear. The attachment to fear, I should be afraid, I should be afraid, or I will be afraid, or I will be afraid of it telling me I should be, or they're telling me I should be, or I will be, or I will be is the issue here, is the issue here to understand fear. To understand fear is to simply know it's there, is to simply know it's there, not to agree to it, and not to agree to it. You are complicit. You are complicit to fear, to fear the moment you agree to it. The moment you agree to it, you become fear's ambassador. You become fear's ambassador when you say yes to it. When you say yes to it, stop saying yes to it. Stop saying yes to it. You'll have a very different experience, experience of yourself, period. Period. This work is so transformational. I'm wondering if the guides see other congruent initiatives, efforts that are also contributing to the mission. I'm sure. And I don't know that I'll get them to speak to it. I mean, they said in the very first book that this teaching is coming in different ways through different sources in different cultures, I would hope. I mean, they've, they've made the distinction, yes, and they're saying I can say this, you know, the teaching that they're bringing through, they're using me in a specific way to bring through a body of work and a canon of work. So I don't know that they're teaching in the same way through others, but I do know that they're working with the students of the work to support them in their own awareness and growth. Do I believe that there are other people teaching this? Yes, in different ways and probably with a different system, you know? How the guides come through me is probably specific to this exchange and these texts. I don't know that for a fact. Obviously, yes. They're saying obviously, yes, because we, because we integrate Paul as the author, as the author of the expression of the expression by nature, by nature of his presence. We are the author of the teaching. We are the author of the teaching, but his presence is part of the authorship. But his presence is part of the author 
dictatorship because it could never happen without him present, because it could not happen without him present. That's your question. To answer your question, of course, this is going on elsewhere. Of course, this is going on elsewhere, and there are meritful teachings elsewhere, and there are meritful teachings elsewhere, as long as the teacher, as long as the teacher is in service to the teaching, is in service to the teaching, not the other way, and not the other way around. It will be a pure teaching. It will be a pure teaching, period, 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 period. Beautiful. Paul, thank you so much for inviting us into your home. Mm-hmm. You're welcome. And sharing this time with us. Thank you. Thank you for coming. All of us have guides, which they can go by any many any number of names. Uh, depending on the culture you're from, you could call them guardian angels. They might be daemons, tikinis. In New Age literature, culture, there's so much chatter about guides and how you can connect to them. And honestly, for me, much of it is sloppy and not really grounded in a fully analytical, realized experience. Even when there's something there, there's something for most people that's real when, they, when you feel this kind of experience of something beyond yourself, looking to get your attention to help you help yourself. But when you can develop that connection in a grounded way and respond to that kind of impulse, not because you need it so badly or you're going after it so intensely, but more because you're responding to something that's emerging organically out of your own psyche, your own experience, something opens up then that is absolutely remarkable and it resonates deeply and can have a a lasting impact in shifting your whole notion of what's really going on here and your own role in it and how connected you are to everything that is and it's something you can hold all the time Paul Selig is a master in so many ways of that relationship and understanding it and developing the discipline to hold it well. It's really instructive to have a conversation with him about how he manages that. And he makes it seem so mundane because it is. It's mundane in a truly beautiful way. I want to thank Paul Selig for being a guest on the podcast. And thank you, too, for joining us. You can follow Paul at paulselig.com. That's S-E-L-I-G, Selig. Also on his Facebook page. And definitely check out his YouTube channel, which features all these channeled lectures and interviews where you can really see the guides in action. And, uh, yeah, I really recommend that. If you like what we're doing here on The Evolver, share what we're doing with your friends. Let them know through social media, and let us know by sending us an email how you feel about things at theevolver at evolver.net. And if you can leave some uh, a rating on iTunes, those stars really help us reach more people and make a big difference for us. So I really would appreciate it. Remember to subscribe to The Evolver on iTunes, Google Play, Acast, or on the podcatcher of your choice. And you can follow us on Instagram at The Evolver Podcast and on Facebook at Evolver Social Media. I want to thank our producer, Jose Alfaro, and the entire ACAST team. Our theme music is Measure by Measure by Paul D. Miller, 
aka DJ Spooky, from his album The Secret Song, and our interstitial music are tracks by The Human Experience, Sunu, from the album Soul Visions with Rising Appalachia, and Here for a Moment on the album Gone Gone Beyond. Please check them out. That's all for now. We'll be back next week. Find the others. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.